Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Need cash but don't want to sell your crypto? Use Nexo's instant crypto credit lines and withdraw funds today, starting from only 5.9% APR. Create an account at nexo.io. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is me. I won't be doing our regularly scheduled programming because at the time when I would normally be recording an episode tied to this week's news, I will instead be on vacation. Still, I got a bunch of interesting questions from you all on Twitter, and some of these questions actually give you a behind-the-scenes look at how I work and how the show works, so I think it will be interesting for all of you. First question is from Ayelin Osorio. Hopefully, I'm not getting the pronunciation of that name too wrong. And she asks, what was your process for learning about crypto? Did you have a specific approach or resources? It can be daunting to learn about crypto at the beginning, like myself and my circle. So I probably have an advantage that a lot of everyday people do not have when it comes to learning about crypto. And that is the fact that simply because I am a journalist, and especially when I began, I was writing for Forbes. So that gave me license to just email people and say, hey, (laughs) writing an article for Forbes, can I talk to you? And that allowed me to learn a lot from the people that were working very directly with these cryptocurrencies, with this technology, and were really in the thick of things and had a true technical understanding. And so I remember one of the very first interviews I did with Devin Gundry of Chain back in the day in 2015, he really opened my eyes to the potential that Bitcoin had and how Bitcoin works and why it was such a big deal. And it just really was a pivotal moment for me to get myself fascinated and send me down the rabbit hole, essentially. And so after that, I just started meeting more of the different people that were involved in this. And uh, like I said, was able to simply call them up and ask them questions. However, at the time, there was also, uh, I don't even remember what it was, but it was something that DCG, I believe, put together where it was like some course about Bitcoin or blockchain technology, or I don't even remember. And I remember However, that I decided to go through some of these modules 
And, you know, it's one of those things where this isn't even going to be helpful for you right now because this is five years later and everything's so different. But I even remember at that time, and this is no knock on DCG, but just feeling like there was something missing. You know, I feel like in a way the technology was actually so new at that point that having maybe a codified course like that was was even difficult for them to pull together because everybody was still sort of learning about what the technology was and how it could be used and what was going to happen with it. So, you know, right now in 2020, there's so many more resources. There's really amazing publications. Probably the most well-known ones are Coindesk and The Block. And I know a lot of people read those regularly as you I. There's some other good ones like Decrypt, which I know a lot of people read as well. And uh, frankly, also a lot of the medium posts and blog posts and tweet storms that the uh, different industry players put out are just a gold mine, frankly. I learned so much from them and I still learn a lot by talking to people directly to find out kind of what's going on, where things are headed. And so if I were you, I would figure out who the really good people are to follow on Twitter and look out for whenever they post something, whenever they publish something, whenever they're interviewed on a, on a show like mine or, um, or when they, if they do a newsletter or there are a whole bunch of other different newsletters that collate a lot of this material, including my own. And so I just figure, um, if you find who the good people to follow are or what the good media resources are, then you should be covered and you will definitely be covered in a better way than I was all the way back in 2015. Um, I guess the only other last bit I would say about this, just as a journalist, is um, probably, and I actually do consider this maybe one of my better skills as a journalist, is that I feel like I can kind of suss out who the good sources are and who the not so good ones are. And sometimes, you know, it does, you know, I have a little bit of trial and error, but in general, um, that is something that I have figured out and, and, uh, can also kind of place kind of the different viewpoints in the bigger picture and know when I go to that person, this is the perspective I'm getting, or when I go to that person, that's the perspective I'm getting. And so that also helps me kind of fill in the full picture and then be able to take that step back for the audience and uh, and relate the story to them as accurately as I can. And Aelin also did ask another question, how do you prepare for an interview? So probably the main thing I would say here is... Uh, Right from the start, obviously, I read a lot. I just want to read um, everything that's written or listen to all the different shows uh, when this person or this project was being interviewed or if it's a particular topic to understand all the different considerations uh, regarding that topic. I just want to be as thorough as possible to really wrap my head around either the information that needs to be covered in terms of like what needs to be relayed to the audience. And so how I want to structure my questions so as to, first of all, write the question in a way to elicit that information from the guest or guests, but then also to structure the interview so that the interview comes in kind of the appropriate or, or the information comes in the appropriate order. But then on top of that, I also want to take a step back, look at the bigger picture and ask, well, what are even tangential issues that relate where you know, that might be something that people might be curious about how those two seemingly separate things interact. You know, this is happening a lot now when I'm doing my Why Bitcoin Now series where 
I'm asking about larger macro forces and their effect on Bitcoin. Um, it also happens when discussing, let's say, Libra, you know, then, of course, it's natural to ask about the DCEP. Or if I'm talking to a regulator, then, of course, you want to discuss all the different aspects of regulation that they may be able to weigh in on and all the different happenings where their actions can affect what's going on. So that is another aspect of my preparation is just to you know, not zoom in too closely to the interview, but then also take a, a moment to zoom out and say, well, what are the other kind of big things going on that that could from the outside influence this topic or these people? Um, and then the last thing that I would say is that I would also just want to make sure, because oftentimes there might be news about something where that would, you know, prompt a question for them that hasn't been answered and maybe they didn't answer it when that news came out because they declined to be interviewed. And so then this show is the perfect opportunity for me to ask about that. And um, I believe this is maybe why a lot of people, after I had been doing the show for a while, informed me that I asked um, what they were calling uncomfortable questions. However, you know, in my mind, the audience comes first. If there's something that I think people will want to know, then I want to ask it. So I always make sure to do that. And, you know, sometimes there are like fake controversies, <laughs> meaning uh, some segment is up in arms about something, or maybe there was kind of a gotcha kind of article. But when I really investigate it, it just feels like it's you know, not really based on anything substantive in terms of a criticism. And so then I don't feel the need to ask about it. But um, but generally, you know, if I find something like that and they haven't commented on it or given any kind of response, I uh, feel totally comfortable asking about it. Crypto Benchy asks, what is your pre-interview ritual? The sort of things running through your head that you prepare before you go live? Um, so as I mentioned in my answer to Aelin, I like to have that picture in my head of the structure of the conversation or the flow, but I think, um, even more so when I talked earlier about kind of, you know, essentially what information needs to be presented, um, I do like to have that in my head already when I go to do the show, because I have talked about this before actually in other interviews but essentially when I do a podcast I think of it as kind of like doing a an article in reverse meaning so for an article maybe I might ask some of the key players early on what the questions are then once I find out kind of from them what their perspective or perspective is or what's going on with them then I go to other people explaining that and getting commentary on that and then maybe I'll go back to the original people and get their response I can't do that, obviously, in a podcast format. So I kind of try to do all that ahead of time, saving the actual interview for the people themselves for the end. And so that means kind of gathering the criticisms in advance or, you know, no, sort of in a way, practically knowing what it is that I want them to say in a way to to get the information across to the audience. So in that sense, I guess that's kind of the main thing going through my head, just having this picture in my head of, you know, well, we need to start here, then we need to go there. And then we have to, I have to be sure, especially if it's the uncomfortable questions, <laughs> the tough questions in my head, I know, okay, by this point, I want to ask 
one of those uncomfortable questions to get there and give them enough time to respond to that. Because obviously I'm not going to start with one of those because it you know, doesn't make sense normally for the conversation. Um, Crypto Toast asks, the toughest interview you've done so far? So for sure, the toughest interview I have done so far was the very first one with Vitalik in January of 2018. And the reason that one is the toughest one is because, you know, I had only started the podcast in the summer of 2016. And by that point, I'd only been doing them every other week. So this is in contrast to the fact that, you know, I've been doing journalism for 22 years now and as a print journalist. And so I've written at least I I, don't, I could not even count how many articles I've written. But in terms of podcasts I had done at that point, it really was very few. And also at that point, I'd only been covering crypto for, uh, I guess, two and a half years and Vitalik was definitely the most technical person I'd ever spoken to and probably the smartest person I'd ever interviewed for the show. So I remember going in just not really knowing what to expect from him because it just he was sort of this like outsized figure in my head. However, now when I interview him, I know so much more about Ethereum. I know him much better as a person. I've interviewed him a lot of times now, and I just have a better grasp on what all the issues are. And even though I'm not the world's most technical person, I still feel that with my knowledge, I can figure out kind of what are the questions that I can ask in a way that my audience can understand and still get some technical understanding or if not exactly technical, uh, kind of like at least at a high level, what's going on or how the different changes in Ethereum will affect them or affect the system. So, um, yeah, so <laughs> now when I interview Vitalik, I, I don't feel anywhere near as nervous other than the fact that I just want to do a good job, which is the same as for any other show. Leah Kellen Butler asked, what do you dislike most about being a crypto journalist? So this is a very interesting and good question. Um, the main thing that I think about, and frankly, I, I think about this a lot and probably way more than people realize. And I think when some people find out how much I think about it, I think they're a little bit surprised. But, you know, journalists are kind of like refs, right? So that puts us in, a, in this kind of tricky position because technically we're not in the game, but we're basically as close to the game as you can be without actually being in it. And so, of course, you know, I'm friendly with a number of sources. I even count some sources as friends. But at the same time, I have a job to do and the job comes first. So even within those friendships, there's kind of this line that, you know, both I and the other person are aware of. And... Um, the other thing is that to the outside world, like people who are kind of more peripheral to the industry or people who want to get into the industry to them, they think I'm in it. So I get a lot of requests from people. They want favors. They want introductions. They, you know, they just, to them, it's, it's like, I'm just a person in the industry so I can introduce them to whoever or, you know, whatever it might be. I've had to say no to so many of these requests, uh, pretty much all of them, just because I feel, hey, you know, if I go to a source and I say so-and-so that I know is looking for a job, um, 
you know, I saw you have this job opening. Do you want to interview them or whatever? If they perceive that they're doing me a favor by doing so, then do they think that later I'll give them positive coverage? Or if they are not interested in interviewing this person and they say no, then will they worry that I either won't give them coverage or I won't give them positive coverage? Or, I, you know, I just can't. And maybe I'm overthinking it because honestly, for most of these people, they're very chill and I'm sure it wouldn't be a big deal, but it's just something that I think about. And so because I don't want to blur any lines, I tend to always just say no to any of these kinds of requests. And that, of course, makes me feel bad doing so. And it's a little bit awkward to explain because the vast majority of people in different business positions, of course, they would do that. And it's just, you know, in the world of journalism, I do feel like there are certain rules for me. And like I said, I might be more strict than the average person. I don't know. It's just I maybe feel like being cautious is probably better than playing looser with these rules. And so that's why I've, I've tended to just say, you know what, I'm just going to have a blanket rule about this. And and frankly, just say no whenever it happens. Um, I will, however, say that there are times when I've done that and I do really feel that the person does take it more personally and it does maybe dampen that relationship a little bit. And that makes me feel that, you know, I probably need to do a better job of explaining just all the different ways in which as a journalist, I really don't feel that I can be too involved or that I can ask people in the industry any anything. Um, and then the only other thing which is related, and, and I did actually start the answer by talking about this, is just that, um, you know, there have also been times, because, because I did mention earlier that, of course, I'm friendly with a lot of sources. You know, it's, it's very common, like if we're doing an interview or whatever, and we're meeting in person pre-pandemic, that of course we would chat a little bit and and talk, you know, about how things were going for us or whatever it might be. Um, however, you know, even then, if they come on my show, then they are the guest and my audience comes first. And therefore that means that no questions are out of bounds. And so, you know, that um, also can just be a little bit of, uh, a little bit awkward because, you know, there are times when we have the personal and friendly relationship, but then when it comes to the show, you know, I, I want it to be just like a normal interview and I and I don't cut people slack uh, just because we've had a friendly conversation. So um, it's all it's all, frankly, a little bit difficult for me because I would want to just be friends with everybody. But um, because of my job and because my audience comes first, that is how I've chosen to handle all of this. All right. ZW asked, outside of your paying job, what top three things do you most enjoy doing? Um, all right. So <laughs> because I, I have a hard time narrowing things down to three, I will just kind of generally say what it is that I like to do. Um, most people on the show probably know that there was a time when I used to teach yoga and I still continue to do yoga. I love yoga. Yoga changed my life. Yoga is amazing. I highly recommend that a lot of people do it. So that's probably number one. Um, close second is dancing slash music. I don't know if that counts as two. They're very closely related to me. I love music. I love to dance. And um, when there's music on, I will generally dance. Um, <laughs> so love dancing. Um, and as you would expect of a writer, I love reading. So reading is also on the list. And 
lastly, closely related to yoga, I'm into all kinds of spiritual stuff. I love meditation, pranayama. If people know what pranayama is, it's like breathing exercises related to yoga. Um, just all those kind of peripheral things to the yoga world. <laughs> that is my world. Uh, you know, most of my friends are either writers or yogis. So <laughs> there you have it. And also people who like music. So it's kind of, that's kind of my world outside of crypto. Uh, ZW also asked, do you own any crypto? If so, what and why? I actually, at the moment, own a little bit of ETH for work purposes. But other than that, I do not personally own any crypto at the moment. I did in the past uh, own a little bit of Bitcoin and a little bit of Ether and um, no longer own them. Kurt Seafried asks, what microphone do you use? What's your recording environment like? So if you're watching this on the video, you can see. Um, so this mic is called an Audio-Technica ATR2100. And my mic stand is a ProLine MS112 Desk Boom mic stand. And my recording environment is just my home office. And for those of you who've been watching on video, you may also have noticed that in recent episodes, I seem to have changed environments. And the reason is because, yes, I moved. <laughs> and if you're wondering why the new office looks so bare bones, it's because I have been so busy since moving that I haven't had a chance to decorate. So... Hopefully that will happen after my vacation. Paul Rosado asks, what is the storyline of your book and when will it be published? So the storyline of my book is about Ethereum and I'm not going to say more about it than what I just said. However, it will be published next year in 2021. So I will keep you all posted. If you listen to the shows regularly, there is no way you will miss me talking about my book because I will definitely be doing that when that comes out. And let's see, Carissa, Camilla McFarland asked me to list the top five leaders I've interviewed from a vision, integrity, intelligence, and capability standpoint. And then she said, ask differently if talent and leadership alone were the only indicator by which you could bet on the future of crypto projects, where would you put your money? So when I saw this question, my mind immediately went to the early Coinbase crew Maybe that's simply because I've known them for so long. I've been interviewing them since 2015. And I think also part of it is because um, just, yeah, out of all the startups from that time, I mean, there's so many good startups from that time, but the Coinbase people really very early on had a particular vision and really stuck with it at a time when the industry was trending trending in another direction, which was pretty interesting because for me as a journalist, I was like, they've got it all wrong. Can't they see where everything is going? <laughs> like, what are they doing? They don't know what they're doing. And yeah, later I was like, oh, I was, I was the one who was wrong. <laughs> um, so, you know, that would be, of course, like Brian Armstrong, Fred Ursum, uh, some of the uh, leaders just below, like Adam White, who is now at Bact. Um, there, oh, Olaf Carlson Wee, who left in 2016 to go found Polychain Capital. And then there's other people who are less well known, like Natalie McGrath, who was head of People, and Kristen Stone, who worked for Adam. And I mean, there, frankly, there's, I, I could probably list a whole bunch, but. Um, there was definitely a lot more than I could list and I'm not going to, because then I'll start feeling like if I miss people, then they're going to be like, why didn't she name me? And it just, 
let me put it this way. Early Coinbase people, they knew what they were up to. Charlie Lee, like, there was just a lot of people. They had a vision. They executed. They executed very well. And yes, okay, early Coinbase was more like a fintech company. I know a lot of people criticize it for that. But they knew what crypto needed at that time, and it needed an on-ramp. And that's how they grew to be bigger than Charles Schwab in, I forget, what was it, a span of six years or five years? or uh, I don't remember the number of years. But anyway, five, I think six. Um, but other leaders, so yeah, again, I'm not going to limit this to five, uh, probably CZ. He's a similar leader in the sense of like having a clear vision going for it and really standing behind, uh, the conviction, uh, his conviction. Um, some others that I thought of when I saw this question were Caitlin Long, again, somebody who she has this particular background. And at the same time, she really understood Bitcoin early. She put the two together, her years on Wall Street and her interest in Bitcoin. And now, I mean, look at what she's doing. She, you know, got all these amazing regulations that are proving to be a model for other states. Um, uh, approved in Wyoming. She's using that now to launch her Avanti Bank. Uh, she's definitely somebody to watch. Uh, similarly, in terms of regulation, I think a lot of us see that Hester Peirce seems to be the SEC commissioner. She seems to be really on the cutting edge and uh, kind of watching this industry, having a deep understanding of what is going on. And yeah, is probably going to um, be part of the future of regulation around this space. Similarly to her, another regulator who really seems to understand things is Chris Giancarlo, the former commissioner, uh, chairman of the CFTC. And he's now pursuing his digital dollar project, which I've definitely got my eye on. He has, he's been on the show. Um, another person who was a regulator and is now working in this space is Katie Hahn. Definitely will keep my eye on her because she really knows the regulatory side well, obviously, but then also is now working in the space. And because I feel that uh, not running a fellow regulation is going to be key to success here, I feel like whatever she does will probably be extremely smart. And just to give a few other shout outs, I would say Robert Leshner is somebody else who came to mind because of how we saw Compound take the uh, liquidity mining um, slash yield farming thing to a new level. I guess Kane Warwick also deserves a mention there uh, because Synthetics was the first crypto network to really implement that. And then the last person that I will just give a shout out to is Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation, who also very clearly has a vision. He sees how Bitcoin will uh, help his uh, advocacy for human rights. And he is doing a lot of amazing work to bring the two together and to help the development of this technology in a way that will serve the human rights cause. So uh, that is those those are my five or not five, but however many it was, my leaders to watch. In a moment, we will talk more about my views on the industry and where things are going. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for crypto purchases? Now, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee when you buy crypto. Apart from crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping with Crypto.com. Get up to 10% back when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? Use the Crypto.com app to buy gift cards for up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. 
With the latest ups and downs in the world's economy, investors need new ways to grow their wealth. Nexo offers a high-yield interest product with up to 10% APY on your crypto, stablecoins, and fiat. You can also borrow cash or stablecoins using your crypto as collateral at APRs as low as 5.9%. And there's the Nexo token that gives holders access to various bonuses and a dividend that is scheduled soon. You can find more info about the Nexo token at nexo.io slash token. That's nexo.io slash token. Back to my AMA. So Camilla also asked, how do you think the layer one blockchain future will look? Zero sum or tide rises all ships? So this is probably a little bit of, it's just, it's basically a Goldilocks answer in the sense that I don't think it's going to be exactly zero sum, but I also definitely don't think it's going to be a tide with <laughs> rise, with all ships rising. I basically think there's probably going to be a few different layer ones that take most of the market share. Um, and, and, when I say that, I really mean probably just a select few. And I think that the ones that do become dominant will be differentiated, probably in the way that Bitcoin and Ethereum are already differentiated and are already both quite dominant. So in a way, the future might look not that different from the way it looks today. But we will see because it's such early days that you know, if you, if people were to try to predict the future of the internet back in 1998 or something, obviously they would have been completely wrong because now we've got like Google and Facebook and all these things that just didn't exist back then. So, um, yeah, but at the moment, that's as far as my, uh, my prognostication, I think, can go. Adaptable asked, how has your confidence, confidence slash conviction in the industry continued to grow over the years? Or has your vast amount of interviews with the various minds in crypto given you any second thoughts or pause? If not crypto, what do you see as the next tech revolution? So I would say that my conviction in the industry definitely has continued to grow. And it's it's simply because there's been more validation at every level, right? Um, Probably the main one being, frankly, government and regulation. You know, I mean, the fact that now we have the office of the controller of the currency giving banks the authority to hold crypto assets. Hello. (laughs) After all the years of banks, you know, just not even being willing to bank crypto startups, that's pretty amazing. That's a huge milestone. And I think that is, like I said, just big validation. We've also seen other, and in a way, these these seem small, but they're significant. You know, Paul Tudor Jones saying, hey, I have exposure to Bitcoin now in my portfolio. Like, who would have thought, right? Um, and maybe it was the pandemic that spurred some of that. But still, it is it is a big deal. That's a name that people pay attention to in certain circles. And it's a circle that has a lot of money to pour into crypto. So in general, I think, you know, we're going to just see more validation from traditional finance. And I also would say that even things like watching the 2017 speculative bubble, which I know was actually pretty dispiriting in a lot of ways because there were so many unsavory things that happened at that time. However, if we just pan out and, you know, not look too closely at all the craziness that was going on, something very interesting about that was that it really did get everyday people involved and was, um, in a way, 
a lot more democratizing than finance has traditionally been. And, you know, I know we have to <laughs> put on our rose colored glasses to, to see that because obviously people who got in at that time probably did lose money. But just if we're going to separate out what happened times in terms of the money factor, but just look at the barriers to entry and how this idea that there's fewer barriers to entry in crypto, I think we can say, okay, that actually sort of played out. And this idea that ICOs were a way to kind of cut out VCs and for everyday people to get in on investments. And I'm not saying all that is a good idea necessarily, but just this idea that is a lot of the walls that exist in finance were starting to come down. Um, maybe not in the most healthy ways, but hopefully that trend can happen without, uh, all the craziness that we saw in 2017, all the scams and hacks and phishing and just, yeah, the pump and dumps and, and all that. But the general trend of opening this up to more people at who, who don't already have a lot of money, you know, that's kind of, an interesting goal. And I, I do feel like we're continuing to see that happen. So, um, however you said, if not crypto, what do I see as the next tech revolution? Well, okay. I've been watching this GPT three thing pretty, uh, with fascination and reading a lot about it and, um, <laughs> you know, kind of trying to figure out which of my friends will be replaced by GPT three. <laughs> um, but the thing is that, at the same time that I'm fascinated by it and thought, whoa, this is just going to decimate jobs. I have this friend who has worked in AI for years. And when I was telling her about it, so she, she quit her, I can't remember when she quit her job, but, um, but anyway, she did. So she's not like completely in the loop now, but she still speaks about it and, you know, does conferences and whatever. And when I told her about it, she said, Laura, like people who work in, so she was like people who don't work in AI they're always the ones who think that this is just going to kill off all the jobs and, and there's going to be some crazy AI revolution. But she was like, people who work in AI, we don't think that we, and you know, she wasn't completely, I caught her. We, we were just talking while she was driving actually. So she couldn't check that her memory of what GPT, GPT three was, was actually what it was. But she said, if it's what I think you're talking about, then she said, don't be too loud. This is still a long way off. There are so many flaws in all this. This is not going to replace anybody soon. So who knows? Maybe I was just uh, swayed by the media. Uh, Michael asked me for an analysis of the yearly crypto trends, DApps, Alts, DeFi, and to determine if they are fads to keep crypto alive or if there's really something to look forward to. So um, this is similar to that previous question. And I would say that for sure, DeFi is is definitely taking off a lot. I mean, if you just look at the numbers when it comes to the DEXs, I actually should have maybe gotten some, some of those figures. Um, I will try to put links to those in the show notes. But the volume on DEXs in just the last few months, especially since this yield farming craze has taken off, I, you know, that's impressive. Like Uniswap is is doing quite well. And I know they just raised money. I would not be surprised if they come out with a token because just the volumes they're doing, I mean, like the, the fees they're collecting already, it's, it's healthy. They, they are, you know, doing really quite well. There's a lot of demand for, um, volume on, on these different automated market makers, frankly. So I expect to continue to see that 
go. I mean, even if we just look at what happened with the whole yam fiasco, that again, it came out of nowhere. It grew really quickly. I mean, it was like the Dow, except instead of taking months to go through, it only took a few days. Um, but you know, I'm not saying that all of that, everything going on in that world is, is good because, you know, we've seen so many exploits and hacks and, and just probably, um, unnecessarily unsafe activity. But I do think that there is something there and that we will continue to see that space grow and see more people get interested in it. And the other thing is, I do think that Ethereum 2.0 is when it switches to proof of stake and staking becomes a much bigger thing. I think that will generate a lot of interest as well. So, um, yeah, so we'll keep watching those trends and I will have more people on the show to discuss those things. But but that's where, you know, I think things are going. And then you also asked if there's a bright future. And I would say, you know, so as I mentioned before, I do think things will continue to grow. However, in terms of bright, it, let's say it's cloudy because I imagine it's going to be filled with a lot of scams and hacks and phishing and theft and everything that we've seen so far and so people be careful. That's that's what I would say. Be careful uh, for the safety of your money, for your own security. And don't be greedy. Just be thoughtful. And, um, you know, remember that this is all very experimental. Uh, but that's, yeah, just even right now when things are still small and it's not crazy yet, I still feel like I'm seeing so many of these little uh, scams and stuff. And I myself, I'm getting a lot of imposters. Um trying to trick my friends and stuff. So be wary. Kev asked, how relevant are fundamentals in the upcoming bull cycle? I, I think that this is probably the answer in every single bull cycle. They're both relevant and not relevant. And what I mean by that is that they're relevant in the sense that, of course, people, the, the, the smart money, the early investors will have done their due diligence and they will know what they're investing in and they will have an understanding of why they want to invest in it or how it makes sense for their portfolio or their goals or whatever it is. And so they will put their money there. But then once the flywheel gets going with the media and with just other people who maybe don't do as much due diligence piling in, then the fundamentals will really not be relevant and there will just be a kind of avalanche of activity and interest that will probably result in the prices, yes, going up. But at that point, it's just, it's literally the momentum and nothing else. <laughs> and, and then maybe the fundamentals probably won't be as relevant and, or they will be relevant for the people who will be trying to figure out when to sell. Um, all right. Where do you see the greatest innovation happening in the industry right now? This is also a question from Kev. Um, so as I mentioned, DeFi with the liquidity mining thing. Um, however, something that I would say about that is that this thing that happened with Wi-Fi or Y-F-I. So by the way, Wi-Fi, which I don't know if they did this on purpose, but it sounds like, you know, like internet, like wireless internet. But anyway, <laughs> so Wi-Fi was kind of interesting because they did kind of like a Satoshi style fair launch where, you know, there was no uh, special allocation for any of the quote unquote investors or the original founding team or anything like that. 
And that really got people excited. So it was kind of the yield farming thing combined with this idea of a fair launch. And we saw that 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 took off so fast. And there was, you know, just quite a lot of community coordination around that. Yam was another good example of that, where before the bug that killed off Yam was discovered, there was a moment where they thought that they could do something to save Yam. And so they were kind of getting the community on board, trying to get everyone to I, I didn't follow the details, but it was something like to delegate their tokens in such a way that they could get a quorum for a certain vote to make the change that was necessary. And, you know, unfortunately, because of this other bug, it wasn't able to happen. But it did look like toward the end that they were going to get enough tokens to pull it off, which is kind of an amazing feat of coordination for a token that had only existed for a few days. Um, however, I think part of that was possible simply because it seems to me that during the pandemic in particular, these people are on the internet all the time. <laughs> but anyway, all right. Next question. Do you ever find time to reflect on how fast everything is moving? I do now because things aren't as crazy. However, I also work on things that are not just my shows. So for instance, my book. And so when that's happening, obviously I'm, I have kind of one foot in the present moment and one foot in uh, what my book's about. And so maybe I'm not paying as close attention, but I have a feeling during the next bubble and hype cycle that I will not have a chance to reflect on how everything's moving, even though I will be aware at the time that everything is moving very fast because in 2017, I just truly felt like I was just being inundated and yes, that is probably how everything's going to go down in not too far in the future. Scaly Nelson asks, I really want to know who is buying these exchange tokens and why. For example, why would you buy comp other than to speculate or BAL? Okay, so for people who don't know comp, comp is the token for compound and BAL is the token for balancer, which are both automated market makers uh, similar to Uniswap. Okay, in the high-minded notion of the you know the purpose of these coins, you would purchase them because you want to participate in governance. However, let's be real here. You're right. I bet at least 90% of these people or some huge percentage basically just want to speculate because they're getting free money, you know, they're providing liquidity or they're um you know, uh uh, providing their tokens to be lent out or, or their, or their borrowing tokens or whatever it might be. So they're doing this activity to earn the exchange token and they may not have any interest in participating in governance. And so they actually may just plan to sell it. Um, and yeah, you know, well, that's how it works. And eventually these tokens will probably hopefully make their way to people who are actually interested in participating in governance I think that remains to be seen. Um, I will keep watching that to see how it all pans out. Um, however, I think the rewards go on for quite a while. So I think the story is just to be continued. All right. Last question. Taraxa Project asks, Hey, Laura, out of all up and coming layer one protocols, which ones have the biggest potential for deployment at scale in the next two to three years? I have not looked into this carefully. I'm not going to pretend like I've interviewed every single layer one and it's spoken to them and have done some kind of evaluation to figure out what's 
which one's going to do the best or anything like that. And the reason is because community is what matters the most. It just is. And so Ethereum, you know, far and away at the moment, just it has that community. Obviously, it's kind of in this moment where it's facing what I would say is a deadline in the sense that activity is ramping up on the platform. Fees are getting extremely high. There's a lot of demand to use these different DeFi uh, tokens and, and projects on Ethereum. And, you know, the network can't handle it at the moment. And so people are having to pay really high fees to do that. And so the question is, can they pull off the transition fast enough for these DeFi apps? And so you're right, like, maybe there could be another layer one protocol that does take some market share. I have not looked closely into whether there are any that are sort of waiting in the wings that could serve as good replacements for a DeFi ecosystem. However, obviously, uh, one that has I've interviewed on my show and that is um, kind of, actually maybe at a similar level of development to Ethereum 2.0 in terms of where it is in, in launching is maybe Polkadot. Um, that's not directly competitive with Ethereum, however, but potentially, I guess, maybe one of their parachains could be devoted to DeFi or something. So, you know, that's something I will have my eye on. Um, but yeah, I will not pretend to have looked this up uh, in, in depth. So maybe if I come up with anything else, then I will let you know. Oh, I actually just did think of another one, of course, which is Project Serum on Solana. And Solana is one blockchain I have been meaning to look into and maybe doing the same may will actually prompt me to finally do that. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> to learn more about me and the answers to any of the questions I answered in this show, be sure to check the links in the show notes of this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the show on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.